right, welcome everybody. Evening. Uh, in case I haven't met you yet, my name is Mark Heffley. I'm the director of Adult Faith Formation and Evangelization. Uh, some of you have had to listen to me uh, for a number of hours now for RCAA. Others, this is your first grueling experience. So welcome. Uh, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Spirit, come fill our hearts, fill this room. Be with us as we break open your word. Help us to encounter you through the pages of scripture to see your character more clearly and your love for us and to come to know Jesus all the more. Please help me say only what you want me to say and guide us in our discussions. And we entrust this class to our Mother Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So uh, we're going to go through the, the letter to the Hebrews, which I'm really excited about. So here's our plan. Um, First, we're doing Hebrews. Hebrews is often neglected, sad, but we're, we picked Hebrews because we just went with the church through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, especially during Lent and the Easter, the Triduum. Now we're in the Easter season, and the church invites us in this period to reflect on what we just went through. Uh, what, who is Jesus? What did he do on the cross? What do we mean when we say his death was a sacrifice and that it, it um, redeems us, uh, frees us from sin? What does all that mean? And the letter to the Hebrews is, uh, in my opinion, the, the best go-to place for answers to those questions. It spends a great deal of time reflecting on exactly who Jesus is and the nature of his death and what the meaning of his death. Um, all right. So that's why we're doing Hebrews. Does anybody, would anybody say Hebrews is their go-to favorite book in the Bible already? I mean, I'll ask you again at the end. Well, good, good. I said earlier, I'm glad nobody is an expert on Hebrews here. Maybe you're just being modest. You are. Uh, all right. Second thing. Uh, oftentimes, there are many legitimate ways to approach scripture, and a lot of times in uh, Bible studies um, or when you read scripture on your own, you're encouraged to ask the question, "How does this relate to my life?" And that's that's well and good, and we'll we'll do that in in this study, especially since large sections of Hebrews is exactly about how all of this applies to your life. But I would encourage us to start with a different question and the different the other question is what does this reveal about god and make god the center of our focus in this bible study and then the questions about how this relates to us are secondary um, but the primary one just want to keep that primary next uh we set up this bible study um where we'll we'll spend all six weeks on hebrews that gives us 
about two chapters each week. So this week we'll talk about one and two. Then Father Walmeyer will teach next week on chapters three and four. And then I'll teach the following week on five and six. And then in the later chapters, Father Walmeyer and I will teach together. And then the last week we'll talk about 11, 12, and 13 together. So two, two chapters a week, except the last week. And um, we're going to do it. We're going to do a close reading of Hebrews uh, passage by passage, which may or may not be the way you've approached studying the Bible before. Um, I fell in love with scripture. I, I prayed with scripture devotionally since I went into seminary. Well, since high school, it really marked a turning point in my life. But I really fell in love with scripture in grad school when I realized I was studying a lot of theology, but I wasn't studying scripture very much. And I was like, oh, I got to remedy this. And so I decided to focus on one book at a time. And then I got a handful of different commentaries. And then I would read one passage of the book. And then I would read what each commentary had to say about it. And then I'd mark up my Bible. And it took me, you know, like several months to get through one book. I started with Mark. It was pretty short. I'm relatively short. Um, Hebrews was the second one I did. And there's something just beautiful about, about going line by line and even word by word. Uh, it's, it can feel toilsome at times, but oh man, you, you reap the benefits at the end. Now, we're not going to go word by word. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have time, nor does anyone have the patience for that for a six-week Bible study. Uh, but we we will be going kind of slowly, reflecting on the meat contained in each passage. And then lastly, um, the the format for each week will be, we'll begin with a presentation either by myself or Father Walmeyer, and then um, there's discussion questions, uh, which um, we'll, we'll go into a discussion with everyone on the discussion questions. Uh, and the discussion will be just as important as the uh, presentation. Uh, that'll be an opportunity for all of us to benefit from each other's insights, because it's not just the scholars and the commentaries that pull out all the depth and the, the important nuggets. It's your own personal experience and your own, you know, prayerful attentive, attentiveness to the text. Uh, you can you can pull out more for us too. All right. Any thoughts? Complaints? Not yet. All right. These are the discussion questions uh, for this week and more or less for each week. So the first one, what do these chapters reveal about God? And I tried to stick with general questions, like not one bright answer, one simple question. Or one simple answer. Uh, what's the most interesting thing stood out to you in these chapters? Then the how might these chapters apply to your life, your family, your ministry? You know, there's all kinds of angles you can go at it with. And then uh, for this week, uh, we're presented with three primary images of Jesus: Jesus as prophet, Jesus as king, and uh, Jesus as priest. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what you all thought about those images. If you maybe you've never thought of Jesus as a priest or never thought of Jesus as 
ping. I don't know. Just want to hear your thoughts. All right, you ready? Okay, I'm so excited. You're scared. Okay, so if you turn to the very beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews is presuming that you already know the Old Testament really well. And it's going to refer back to the Old Testament again and again and again, especially the Psalms. The Psalms are the, the favorite. Uh, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, so the author. The letter, the Psalms are like the favorite book of the author to the letter of the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, later, the uh, author will compare Jesus to the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle in the desert when Israel was wandering around in the desert. And in case you've been reading uh, the latter half of Exodus or the book of Leviticus lately, the talk about the tabernacle is probably going to seem a little, little rusty to you. Uh, so what I wanted to start with was just a very quick bird's eye view kind of skim over the Old Testament story, just focusing on the the important things to get with the, the letters that the Hebrews is talking about. Uh, when the author brings up the tabernacle and stuff later, we'll, we'll return to all the tabernacle stuff. Um, so we won't go too deep in the Old Testament, but we'll try to just give you enough refresher or introduction to the Old Testament if you've never read it before in order to get the nuggets out of Hebrews. All right, so the book, the Bible begins with Genesis and uh, Genesis begins with the creation accounts and God creating mankind, Adam and Eve, in a garden on the sixth day of seven days of creation. The seventh day is a day of rest. So the garden and the seven stuff is imagery to convey the idea of covenant. God created man and mankind to be in a covenant relationship with God and also all of creation to be in a covenant relationship with God. So what does that mean? Another example of a covenant is a marriage. Uh, I swore an oath. I made a solemn promise to my wife. And by making that solemn promise, we became family. What God throughout the Old Testament will make covenants with people. And what that means is he makes a promise to them. They sometimes make a promise back, but not all the time. And then by making those promises, God and man become family. Which is a pretty big deal. And if we're family, that means God can dwell in our presence. We can dwell in his presence. He makes us holy. There's all kinds of all kinds of consequences of being part of God's family. So what we see in the beginning of Genesis is God makes all of creation, but in a unique way, man and woman to be in a covenant relationship with God. They then quickly mess it up with the fruit. 
And the first 11 chapters of Genesis is all about mankind just spiraling downward, downward. God even tries to restart it with the flood, but the flood doesn't even work because Noah gets drunk immediately afterwards. And it's just everything's going down. All right. So that's Genesis. Oh, the beginning of Genesis. Then God picks one person, Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham. Because God has a plan from all of eternity to fix what was messed up in the garden. And that plan involves picking one person and then through that one person's family to bring all of creation back into a covenant relationship with God. So he starts with one person, Abraham, and then makes a covenant with him that through Abraham and his descendants, God will bless everyone. In other words, bring everyone into a covenant relationship with God. Abraham then has his children. They, I'm skipping over lots of stuff. His children end up in Egypt. A few hundred years pass by, they get enslaved. God has to free them by picking Moses. Moses, and I mean, God frees them, but at the leadership of Moses and brings them out of Egypt and into the desert where they stop at a mountain. And this is probably the most important part of the whole Old Testament. Everything leads up to Mount Sinai and everything leads away from Mount Sinai and refers back to Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai is the most important event in the entire Old Testament. Why? Well, first, God invites Moses up Mount Sinai, appears in a fire and a cloud. And through Moses makes a covenant with all of Abraham's descendants. It's a big deal. They're going to be a holy people in the family of God. They're going to be the son of God. Israel collectively is the son of God. Um, they're, they're going to be great. And then through them, through the way they live, the way they worship, the, the way they treat their families, they're going to somehow bring God's blessing to all of creation. Sounds good. If they do it right, did they do it right? They didn't. They quickly, very quickly, just like Adam and Eve, they fell away and worshiped the golden calf. Uh, and that's a problem, but God doesn't wipe them out. God redoes the covenant with them, reinstates the covenant. And that's that's really cool. That's a big deal, actually. It says a lot about God. There's something else very important that happens at Sinai, and it's very important for understanding Hebrews. God has the people create a tabernacle in the desert. This is hugely important. The almost the entire second half of Exodus is about the tabernacle, and Leviticus is about the tabernacle, uh, mostly about the tabernacle. Why a tabernacle? So the tabernacle is this tent structure. So there's the the outer walls. And then you come into uh, um, where there's an altar and a wash basin, and then there's a tent. That tent is called the holy place. You go into the holy place, and this is what it looks like inside. You have the menorah. You have the bread of the presence. We don't have to get into the details. We'll get into them later. Okay. And then there's a curtain. This is huge. The curtain separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. 
because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, and that's where God dwells. Only one person can go in there, only once a year. That's the high priest. He goes in there on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about later because the letter to the Hebrews brings it up. So what's the significance of the, the tabernacle? The tabernacle is a recreation of Mount Sinai. God, God's presence dwelt on Mount Sinai. God's presence now dwells in the tabernacle. And God dwells in the tabernacle in a sacramental way. Through things you can touch, taste, smell, hear, you encounter God. Uh, you can think about this on a, on a natural level. When you encounter somebody's body, you encounter the person, even though the, the body, you can't reduce the person to the body. Like, oh, you lost an arm, you're half a person now, or a quarter of a person. A uh, word, by hearing the sound of a word or seeing the symbol on a piece of paper, you encounter an idea even though that idea isn't the same as the word, but they come together. We're surrounded by sacraments, visible things that convey something invisible. God does this all the time. Scripture is a prime example. You know, scripture, what is this? It's a collection of paper and ink. But in some way, God communicates with us through this physical thing. By encountering this book with faith, you encounter God himself. The tabernacle is like scripture. By walking into the tent, by dealing with the menorah, by offering the incense and the blood and the goats and everything that goes on in the tabernacle, in some way, Israel is coming into and dwelling with God present through the tabernacle. So that's why the tabernacle is such a big deal. How they treat the tabernacle is how they treat God. And if there's sins, the, the most important thing for the letter to the Hebrews is the Day of Atonement. So there's lots of different sacrifices. We don't have to get into them. Uh, we will get into them in the fall. If you're interested, we'll go through the first five books of the Bible. Um, but for now, We'll just focus on the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was if Israel's sins just got to be too wild, too much, it ran the danger of pushing God out of the tabernacle because the people were just too defiled by sin. God's presence couldn't remain with them. So Leviticus solves the issue. How can we deal with our sins if they just... You can think of it as like uh, floodwaters. If it just rises too high, how do you get rid of it? Well, God gives them the Day of Atonement. In the middle of the book of Leviticus, what they do is the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, spreads the, the blood of an animal inside the Holy of Holies, and then takes a goat, the scapegoat, puts his hands on the scapegoat, confessing the sins of the people, and then chases this, well, not really chases, leads the goat out into the wilderness. So through these sacramental signs, it was Israel, it was God through the goat and the blood 
pushing Israel's sins out into the wilderness to be dealt with later. But that gets Israel's sins out and God's presence can stay in the tabernacle. What Hebrews is going to go into is, all right, that all was there to help us understand and get ready for what Jesus does. Who is the real sacrifice, whose blood really atones for sins, and who doesn't just push the sins out into the wilderness, but gets rid of sins. So this just sets the stage for that. All right, so that's Leviticus. Uh, then they wander in the desert for a while. That's numbers in Deuteronomy. They keep messing up. Then they go into the promised land. They're there for a while with Joshua and judges. Uh, but they start having issues because they don't have a king and everybody's running amok. So they install a king. And the most important king is King David. God makes a covenant with David saying, you'll always have a son on the throne and your kingdom will last forever. Sounds sweet, except David's son Solomon is, isn't a very good king. And his, Solomon's son ends up dividing the kingdom. Uh, and a few hundred years later, the kingdom's destroyed. The last son of David, descendant of David on the throne, gets hauled away to Babylon. So now the question is... Did God forget his covenant to David? He doesn't. But there's no there's no descendant of David on the throne. God promised that David's kingdom would last forever. And so then this raises a lot of questions for the Israelites. How is God going to be faithful? And they start awaiting the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be a descendant of David who reestablishes David's kingdom who sits back on the throne of David and in some way deals with the guilt uh, and, you know, all the unfaithfulness of Israel. Jesus comes on the scene, of course, and claims to be this Messiah. And then the letter to the Hebrews is all about spelling out how Jesus is the Messiah. All right. Yeah, he runs into a lot of opposition. But after his death, I mean, Peter gets up and gives one sermon and 3,000 people are baptized. That's a good, <laughs> that's not bad. That's not a bad record. All right. So that gives us just the basic background information to dive into Hebrews. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. All right, let's take a look at the first four verses. Uh, if you compare Hebrews to other letters in the New Testament, you'll notice Hebrews is unique because it doesn't start like a letter. It ends like a letter, but it doesn't start with a like a letter. There's no greeting. There's no nowhere in the letter does the author identify himself. Like Paul's letters, he always says, this is, you know, Paul. He refers to himself a lot in his letters. Uh, he'll also refer to the community that he's writing to. Hebrews doesn't. Uh, it's written more like a homily. So you can imagine uh, whoever this author is likely delivered this or at least a version of it as a, 
as a sermon during during mass. That's a that's a lengthy lengthy sermon. I should give this to Father Hall and say, hey, you know, you got some. Did you ever? What's the longest sermon you you gave? What's the longest sermon you gave? <laughs> I imagine that would be hard as a preacher. <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't do that tonight. I will keep talking and I'll focus on lots of. <laughs> All right. So the, the first four verses really on, they set the stage for the entire letter. If you can. Um, if you feel comfortable with the first four verses and can kind of unpack each line, you got almost the entire letter to the Hebrews. Not only the entire letter to the Hebrews, but almost every important thing we believe about Jesus. So, man, there is a lot in this passage. So, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. All right, so what's, what's something you notice? Yes. Yes, that's a bold claim. So it, this letter, it's titled Letter to the Hebrews, um, probably because this was, it would have been a Christian community, um, but it was most likely a Christian community made up majority Jews who became Christian. Um, so they're Hebrew by race and they would know the Jewish customs and know the Old Testament. So this author claiming that Jesus kind of ends the the old time of the the prophets. That's a that's big, big deal. We take it for granted. All right. So uh, a big theme in the letter is God speaks and we listen. Um, Christians are referred to as hearers throughout the letter. Uh, the term apostle is never applied to a person. Like we tend to uh, describe Peter as an apostle or Paul as an apostle. This letter, this person never refers to them as apostles. The highest office in the church in the letter to the Hebrews is a hearer. One who hears the word of God and responds to it. And it reminds me of Jesus's words uh, when Mary and uh, some other family members come to see Jesus. And somebody says, hey, your mom's here. And um, he says, oh, shoot. brain fart. That's a, oh, how does the conversation start? Yeah, blessed. He, he ends by saying, blessed rather is the one who hears the word of God and listens. No, oh, how does he start that though? Oh failing. All right. 
But so the highest office in the church is a hearer, one who listens to the word of God. Jesus is the apostle. Jesus is the one in the truest sense who's come from God because he is God and has delivered the word of God to us. All right. And in the last days, so the time of the Messiah is here. The last days is a Jewish way of referring to the promised time to come when the Messiah would come. Uh, well, the last days are here, he says, in Jesus. And so that means no more prophets in the Old Testament sense of prophets. Um, no more prophets because God has revealed everything that he can reveal in his son, Jesus. All right. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. So he's God. Uh, for the Jewish mind, um, they reflected less on what is God and more on who is God, uh, the divine identity. Um, God is the one who creates all and rules over all. So for the for the Jew, if there's any claim to creating or any claim to sharing God's reign, that's a claim to being God. Hebrews and Paul and everywhere in the Old Testament makes this similar, makes the claim that Jesus is divine, but not always in the most obvious ways for us. Uh, I had a friend who was at a public university in Wisconsin, and they were the professor made a claim that while Jesus never claimed to be God and the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Jesus is God except the Gospel of John, which was written later. Like, no, if you know how, if you know Jewish customs, uh, you would know, oh, there's, there's claims all over the place. So this is one of those. Claiming that Jesus uh, participates in creation and participates in ruling creation is the same thing as saying, Jesus is God. Not to mention he bears the very stamp of God's nature. Yeah. He also, he's the heir of all things, meaning he rules all things. And he also created the world through whom God created the world. Next, he made purification for sins. So he's a priest. So, yeah. He, he accomplished what the tabernacle was just a foretaste of, and the especially the Day of Atonement was just a foretaste of the real atonement that was going to be done by Jesus. Now, this this is a big deal. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's a big deal for two reasons. First, where is he sitting? At the right hand, which the right hand is a symbol of authority. So if one is at the right hand, he's not below God. He's not at God's feet. He's side by side with God and at the right side. So he shares in God's authority. Only God can share in God's authority. Only God can sit at God's right hand as an equal. Second, the fact that he sat. Oh, there's actually three things. Uh, in the beginning of Hebrews, he's going to compare Jesus to angels. Angels never sit in the presence of God. They're always standing or prostrate before God. Jesus sits 
next to God. So another bold claim. Lastly, Jesus made a purification for sins and then he sat down. That means no more offerings have to be made. The priests can never sit down. They have to go into the tabernacle or later the temple, which is just the permanent tabernacle. They have to go into the tabernacle day after day, morning and evening, offering sacrifice. They have to go in every year on the Day of Atonement, repeatedly offering sacrifices to try to remedy the sin situation. And but it's never done. They can never sit and say, it's over. I offered the last goat. It is all done. They can never sit. They just have to keep getting replaced with new priests. But Jesus offers the one sacrifice on the cross, and now he can sit, meaning it's done. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Which is another thing we take for granted, but this is mind-bogglingly important. All right. Then last, he became superior to angels. As was pointed out, God is, I mean, really, God's only one superior to angels. As the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Anybody know what name he's referring to? Yes, yes. So for the for the Hebrew, they'd be thinking when they hear the name, they would think of God's divine name that he revealed to Moses in the desert, uh, Yahweh. Uh, over time, the Jews started, um, they stopped saying the name. And instead, they would replace it with a different title, uh, like Lord or Hashem, which is the name, as a way to to respect the the name Yahweh. And they didn't want to like people trampling over it. So instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Hashem, the name. But it's referring to God Himself. So if Jesus has obtained the name, it means He shares the divine name. Which means he's yes, and that's it is. Oh, I love this. I love this. So this is this unpacks. Oh, this sets the stage for the entire letter. The entire letter is just unpacking just these four verses. What it means that God spoke through His Son, and that is the end of the prophets. What it means that Jesus is God. Or unpacking more who is God, who is Jesus. And spending a lot of time on Jesus as the priest who makes purification for sins and then sits down. That's going to be a huge theme. Probably the predominant theme throughout Hebrews is what it means to say Jesus offered the sacrifice for sins. All right. All right. All right. We won't we won't go as slowly through the other passages here. I just wanted to highlight a couple things from verses 5 through 14. Uh, here, the author wants, so he announced at the end of verse 4, in verse 4, what he's going to unpack, that Jesus is superior to angels. Then in the rest of chapter 1, he's going to show try to argue the point that Jesus is superior to angels. He's going to turn to the Psalms and say what the Psalms say about Jesus 
means Jesus is better than the angels, superior to the angels. So his first point in verse five is God never said to the angels, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Angels aren't God's son, but Jesus is God's son. But here's a big one. In verse six, he quotes from Psalm 97 and Deuteronomy uh, 32. Let all God's angels worship him. Well, if the angels are worshiping him, then that must mean he's superior to the angels. All right. So that was in uh, verse six, skipping down to verse eight. Oh, this is this is a, a doozy. But of the son, he says. So he is referring to God. But of the son, God says your throne. Oh, God is forever and ever. Wait, God's speaking and he's saying to the son, your throne, oh, God, is forever and ever. Wait, I thought it was God speaking, but he's addressing. God, yeah, yeah. This is a bold claim that Jesus is God applying these words to the the psalm to Jesus. And in verse 10, God says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So again, Jesus is the Lord who created. Wow. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So you can imagine the author's a letter to the Hebrews is like, my job's done. I did it. He's superior to angels. And he sat at uh, God's right hand, whereas the angels don't sit. All right. Cool. That's the rest of chapter one. Jesus is greater than the angels, and Jesus is equal to God. Now, in chapter two, what what the letter to the Hebrews is going to do frequently is it'll switch from exposition or teaching us something about Jesus to exhortation, saying, well, if that's true about Jesus, you got to get your life together. <laughs> Basically, you got to you got to this is how it applies to your life. So chapter one, it's all about, OK, here's a lot about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Chapter two then begins to switch to the exhortation. Well, if that's all true, then then we have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. <clears throat> All right. So, first, we must pay closer attention. This is a, in the Greek, it's a nautical term, uh, meaning setting your attention, setting your focus on the shore. 
so he'll use the other nautical references like anchor um, later. But this is a uh, the gospels like the the gospel brings us to the shore or the gospel is the shore. I don't know how to impact the the metaphor. I should have practiced before. But our goal is to set our, our focus on the shore. All right. And uh, focus on what we have heard. What we have heard is the letter to the Hebrews way of referring to the gospel. It doesn't use the term um, euangelion, which is the typical way of referring to the gospel. It's just the Greek word for gospel. Um, he doesn't use that term. Instead, he says what we have heard. So that is the gospel. Then he compares it to the message declared by the angels. Uh, this would be the Old Testament law. Uh, Jewish tradition was that it was it wasn't given directly by God, but it was mediated through angels. Um, but if Jesus is superior to angels, that means what he delivered is superior to what the angels delivered, which means Jesus is greater than the Old Testament law. That's not super important right now. And he brings up this warning that we can drift away. So he's addressing this, this homily, this letter to already baptized. He refers to them as enlightened, already baptized Christians, but there's still a danger that they'll fall away, which is a warning to every Christian that, you know, just being baptized, just, just being in the church, um, doesn't mean you're secure for her life automatically. Uh, you have to keep remaining faithful. And uh, he compares the consequences to infidelity for a Christian to the consequences of infidelity for the Israelites. So the Israelites were punished rather severely in the Old Testament for their infidelity, but they were unfaithful to a message declared by angels. How much more will we be punished if we're unfaithful to a message declared by God himself is his point. Uh, and if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see a progression in punishment. You'll see a lot of physical punishments in the Old Testament, but you won't see much, if any, references to hell or any kind of eternal separation from God. It's just not there. That doesn't come onto the scene in full force until Jesus comes on the scene. And he talks about hell more than the full Old Testament put together. So what's with this disconnect? Well, there's a progression. The more God reveals himself, the higher the stakes are, both in a good way. Like the more he reveals, the more good we receive. But if we reject that good, the consequences are even greater. Uh, this is true on a natural level, like between friends, uh, as you reveal more and more of yourself to a friend, the friend's betrayal or fidelity becomes that much more serious. Uh, when I started asking out my wife, um, when I first met her, I asked her on a date and she turned me down. And it's like, oh, that that stinks. But it's not, you know, it's not betrayal. She didn't owe me anything. Um, then I asked her out again and she turned me down. And then finally, she came to her senses and we started dating. And as we dated, you know, we started to share more with each other. And so it becomes more serious. If I'm unfaithful, 
in the dating relationship, it's more of a big deal um, than, you know, if I go on a date with another girl that could end the relationship, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not a super big deal. When we got engaged, then if I went on a date with another girl, the consequences would be more severe. But now that we're married, you know, that's, uh, so the more, the more you share, but I, I don't look at my marriage as, oh, now I just can't go on dates with other women. This is, this is a trap. No, it's, you know, it's a great thing because now I have my wife and she has me. And so there's a huge positive there. Um, but there's also the negative, you know, side that infidelity has a greater consequences now. Same thing with our relationship with God. It's not about, um, it's not like the whole Christian life is about avoiding hell. It's about enjoying the good that God has to share with us um, and sharing ourselves with God. And that that's reason enough to become a Christian, even if hell wasn't in the picture. But since God has shared so much with us, if we reject it, the consequences are, are more severe. All right. It was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. This is referring to a tradition. So none of us are recipients of a direct revelation by the Lord because we weren't there. We weren't witnesses to Jesus through his ministry and witnesses of Jesus's crucifixion, death and resurrection like the apostles were. That was the criteria to become an apostle uh, when they had to replace Judas is they had to be there from the baptism of Jesus. They had to be a real eyewitness to everything that Jesus did and taught and all the miracles and such. So they were the prime witnesses and recipients of what God has spoken through the son, and then they pass it on to others and on down the line of the church today. But it doesn't mean we believe blindly uh, because God also confirms what we hear from these eyewitnesses and the people they've passed it on to through miracles and also the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to each individual through baptism, but can also be given apart from baptism. Um, but every baptized person automatically has the gifts of the Holy Spirit, maybe not fostered to full development, but they have them. And one of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit is it enlightens the mind to better understand the truth and to know, to know God more directly. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this um, is Saint or Blessed. I don't remember if he's canonized yet or if he's still blessed, but Charles de Foucauld. Uh, he was a Frenchman in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, I think. And he was baptized, but he fell away from the church for a long time and lived a rather loose life. Uh, he had a conversion later. And then, um, well, no, he had the beginnings of a conversion, kind of like toying with the idea of coming back to the church. And his cousin convinced him to go to talk to this priest in town who also taught at the university and she thought could answer all of his questions. And so the only time that Charles could meet with this priest was during confession because he was really busy. So he goes into the confessional and says, Father, um, I'm not here for confession. I don't think I even believe in any of this stuff. Uh, I was wondering if you could answer some of my questions. And the priest in his wisdom said, no, you need to make a good confession. And Charles objected and they went back and forth a couple of times. And then finally, 
something moved Charles to make his confession and he got on his knees and he made it. And uh, when the priest granted him absolution, Charles described it as like this light going off in his head. And he said, I no longer believed, but I knew it was true. Now that, I mean, it's exaggeration because you, you never live without faith in this life, but it highlights this gift of the Holy Spirit to, to allow one to see. Maybe you've had this experience with like family members who uh, have, who just hate the church or acquaintances and, and you just don't, you don't get it. Like, oh, it's just, it's so clear to me that this is true. And, and I don't understand the obstacle here. Well, there's, I mean, the Holy Spirit really has to work on your mind in order to open it, to, to be receptive. So that's what Hebrews is referring to here. All right. I just wanted to point out a couple nuggets here in verses five through nine. Um, I love this. It says uh, in verse six, it has been testified somewhere. I love it because I'm terrible at remembering where scripture verses come from. Uh, some people, yeah, there's too many. And I have a horrible memory to begin with, and I just can't do it. Well, Hebrews never cites a book. It just says, well, it says somewhere. So if you get into a discussion with somebody, you don't feel like you have to know all the book names and chapter numbers and verse numbers. You can always say, well, author of the Hebrews didn't do it. You can just say, well, it says somewhere in the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Um, verse 7, we'll skip that. Uh, verse 9 is the first time Jesus' name is mentioned. And uh, it brings up this idea of Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, in some way saving us from death. He's tasting death for all of us, which will be unpacked later in the letter. All right, going a little faster because I want to get to the discussion. Uh, chapter two, moving on to verse 10, says, for it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's kind of kind of odd, right? First, it was fitting. From all that we know about who God is, God's character, as we see throughout the Old Testament, the letter to the Hebrews is claiming it just makes sense that God would die on the cross for us. From all that we know of God's character, it's simply fitting that he would do what he did on the cross, which I think is a bold claim because claiming that Jesus, I mean, we become desensitized to it. Um, we've become desensitized to the crucifix. It's not as jarring as it was to first century Christians. Um, to say that to say that God himself died as a man on the cross is, I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense. We, we don't even like dying for good people, Paul will argue. 
but God proves his love that even for sinners, even when we're sinners, he died for us. So it, it's like no one would ever expect that. But Hebrews makes a claim, well, no, if you really know God by reading the Old Testament, you would almost expect God to die on the cross. So if your experience in reading the Old Testament is, well, God seems really harsh and domineering and vengeful or, you know, whatever negative adjective you would throw in there, if that's the picture you get from the Old Testament, Hebrews would challenge you to read it again. And yeah, 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 there's there's a lot once you start looking with the question of how is God revealed? in the text, if you approach the Old Testament slowly and with teachers with that question in mind, you see a totally different picture of God so that you can say with Hebrews, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense that God would die on the cross for us. Now, to make perfect, uh, this is it seems to be referring to his uh, consecration as a priest. So in Greek, so the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, most of it. And then uh, a while before Jesus was born, some Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, translated the Old Testament into Greek. That was the first like major translation of the Bible. And that's called the Septuagint, which you don't have to know just in case you're a major nerd like me. So that was translated, that was a Greek translation. Now in Jesus's day, most people in that area knew Greek. They could speak Greek. If you could read, you could read Greek. And the Septuagint was the most popular version of the Old Testament. So when you read through the Gospels and Paul's letters, most of the time when they refer to the Old Testament, they're referring to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in passages where it talks about consecrating a priest, it uses the phrase make perfect. So Levi was made perfect. In other words, he was ordained a priest. Uh, Levi's sons were made perfect, made a, consecrated a priest. That's most likely what he's referring to here. It's not like Jesus was imperfect on an ontological level or morally imperfect and somehow through his death he became better no he became a priest by suffering and by it's fitting that he would do so so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest since he suffered, he can empathize with us or suffering people, which makes him an even better priest. So this ends chapter two and it announces the theme that's going to be traced through chapter three, four, and five. So chapter three will take up how Jesus is a faithful high priest. Chapter three and four will be about Jesus as a faithful high priest. Chapter five will be about Jesus as the merciful high priest. So just as the end of chapter one, well, the end of verse four announced 
what chapter one was going to be about, how Jesus is superior to angels. Same way the end of chapter two announces what the next chapters are going to be about. Jesus has the faithful high priest and Jesus has the merciful. And that's the first two chapters. Skipping over some things, but. <laughs>